here we are now with episode number five of our series, You Are the Chosen One. Harry needs a permission slip signed so that he can do certain things at school. And this is, well, what are you going to do? This really is the typical child-adult drama. The child wants something, and they know that the parent is in complete power and control, and most likely not going to let them do it at all. So what can the child do? What does Harry do? He knows it's very unlikely that the Dursleys are going to care at all about his permission slip. So he works out some way of, well, maybe I should blackmail them, maybe I should trick them, or maybe I should do something for them. And as it happens, well, another auntie is coming to visit, a family member, I think it's another auntie or someone. And, well, Harry says, if I behave myself, will you do it for me? If I don't mess up, if I don't let on. And you know, that this is something that's a big thing for Mr. Dursley, Harry's guardian, because, well, in the past, Harry exposing himself or showing himself or getting in the way or messing things up has been a great source of pain for Mr. Dursley. So they sort of make a deal and it seems to be working out fine, but... When the auntie does turn up, well, they have this line in the movie where she's talking about Harry's mother. And it's very, very mean what she's saying. And it makes Harry very angry. It triggers something in Harry. And it's very hard for him to really live up to behaving himself. Because something overtakes him and he becomes quite outraged and that of course leads to some magic happening in revenge and it sort of feeds into itself because the rest of the family are sitting around thinking well isn't Harry terrible isn't there something wrong with Harry isn't Harry such a weirdo and then talking about his family and saying these terrible things about his family And then terrible things start to happen, and he does start acting terribly. Which sort of feeds into itself, and, well, I knew you were rotten. You damn Harry Potter boy, is the Dursley's thinking. I knew you would ruin everything. So there's a circle there, there's a vicious cycle. And... More broadly, we can say that a child always contends with having their parents overpower them. And there's a critical age where the parent is no longer a carer, but a guardian. And the difference is the carer, well, the child is dependent on the... The child is dependent on the parent for that basic thing of life, food, shelter, warmth. And that does continue, that still continues, as a guardian. 
But in the, in the case of the guardian, the guardian is deciding, well, what you can and can't do. And because you're older, there is a range of things that you can do, which are options to you, which weren't available when you were younger. Certain outings, certain events, certain community activities. And you're looking at your friends and you're saying, well, my friends are doing this. My friends have this idea. My friend is the same age as me and her parents let her do this. And so on. And the very instant a child gets the chance to, how do we say, blackmail the parent or do something to their advantage, they're going to do it. They're going to do everything they can to work that power struggle. And in the case of Harry, well, he's saying, I'll suck up to them. I'll do what they say. And in other cases, in other scenarios, it does work more like a manipulative, a manipulative blackmail and a cunningness. Children have a cunningness, which sometimes even the adults can't see and they can't foresee. And there even gets to a point in a child's growth where the child does have the power and the child is fed up and the child says, I am going to do this anyway and you can't stop me. And they really push back and they really say, what's it going to take for you to stop me? Watch me while I still go ahead with this. And that's a cause, that's a, that's a theme which is this, the center of a lot of drama in families. And it usually comes around mid-adolescence. Just at the start of where Harry is at right now. He's probably about 13, 14 at this age. And that power contending really comes up at around 16, 17. So he's getting pretty close to that age. And the other side of it is, well, the conditioning is not always this glorious battle for the underdog or this vicious standing up to authority. The other side of it is, well, children do conform and they do become conditioned and they do become socialized and they do learn to fit in for the sake of certain things. And they forget to follow their deepest intuitions their deepest desires, their deepest wants. And in this case, well, Harry really wants this permission slip to be signed because otherwise his friends are going to be going off in the magic land without him and he really doesn't want to be left out. That really is what he wants. And it's perfectly possible that some children in that situation would say, no, it's okay. I'll just do without it's okay. I won't be missing out on too much. I just have to accept that my parents or my guardians won't let me. And that becomes an attitude towards life. And that becomes a, a very deep-rooted apathy. It's an attitude that can be projected or used in many situations as adults. 
What sort of job are you going to work in? What sort of desires and outings do you have? What sort of what sort of places do you want to go? What places do you want to be? And there will come a time when you can choose anything. You can choose anything in anything in all the world. And yet it doesn't feel like that moment ever arrives for many people because they've been conditioned to make compromises or to suck up or to yield to the power of those older than us to do as we're told so something goes wrong with Harry's auntie and it's a big mix up And now Harry's thinking, oh, now he's going to get expelled, even worse. And the Minister of Magic turns up. And actually, they fix it. They say, no, 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 it's all right. No problem, Harry. Just a mistake, just a little misunderstanding. And Harry's sort of thinking, now, this is a bit weird, because last year, Harry was getting expelled because of this thing with the house elf, this accidental magic that happened at home and now this year it's no problem and not only that but the the minister of magic is turning up why is the minister the head magician the head wizard why is he turning up for some little thing and the theme of the whole story revolving around harry is reenacted and the whole thing of Harry is the center of the universe and all these people are orchestrating these things around him and we don't know at this stage in the story why it turns out to be this way and it's thinking why is it always Harry why is there always something happening with Harry why is he always getting into these situations As it happens, as we continue in our plot, and as Harry has done for the last two years, he goes back to school. And on the train ride there, there is an encounter that occurs. And that is... Well, well, actually, before we get onto that, I'll just add that one of the things Harry did was he ran away after he'd had this mishap with his auntie. So that's another thing that children do to rebel against their parents. They say, I'm actually not dependent on you. You want to be my guardian just because you feed me and clothe me and shelter me? Well, actually, I'm going to run away, prove you wrong. And that's a very dramatic moment in a child's life when they do that. And each child gets a different <laughs> each child gets a different distance away from home. Some people some kids only make it to the corner store. <laughs> and maybe maybe even the ones that take it to the corner store are adventurous. So anyway, that's another side that's another little detail in our plot. Back on the train to school, Harry has this encounter because the train stops. And everything goes cold. 
and some ghosts turn up. And these ghosts are called Dementors. And they're basically the the wizard's world version of an evil spirit or a demon. And they basically suck the life out of you. They basically make you feel really cold and depressed. And Harry has a bit of an episode. He sort of freaks out and faints. And when he comes to, there's a teacher there. And he's thinking, why? Why does it affect me? All my classmates didn't faint like I did. They're not being so much affected. And the teacher is very, actually very caring and says, Harry, well, maybe it's because you're more sensitive. Because darkness is something very real to you. Because you've had so much darkness in your life. And on a more subtle level, we can say sometimes people are dementors. And it takes a bit of subtlety to know this. It takes a bit of sensitivity to know this. And you do have to be experienced to some extent with people, with talking to people. And really, you do need to have an amount of awareness of how you feel in your body when you talk to people. And furthermore, if you're really into it, well, then you can listen to something beyond words. You can listen to someone communicate beyond their words. That's really the ultimate version of being sensitive to listening to someone. And if you're not, you're not aware of that, you still might come across people, you know, like you sit, you sit down with an old friend or you meet someone or you just have a, you just have a conversation with someone. You start talking and they're telling you certain things and they're sort of doing most of the talking. You know those people that do most of the talking? I suppose I shouldn't put them down because at the moment I'm the one doing all the talking. But whatever, you're in this conversation and, and you're sort of sitting there, you're listening to them and, and it's not like you're saying, oh, I, I need to get out of here or I disagree or I need to say something or anything like that. You're just sort of okay with going along with the conversation and then the conversation ends and you go somewhere else and you just think, oh, I feel really bad. I feel really bad after that conversation. Something has just sucked out of me. And I've had this experience with a certain person in particular. I remember talking to her and really feeling like, well, actually, I have to listen. I can't talk. It's not a two-way talking. And she does do all the talking. She's always talking. And what she says, somehow, strangely, it, it made sense. And it was okay to talk about. It wasn't like we were talking about extravagant things or dark things. And they were pretty normal things to talk about, actually. They were just stories and little things from life and little things from the past and little opinions, these sorts of things. It was really quite a normal conversation. But there was something in the energy, something in the tone, the feeling that was very draining, very draining. 
And that was listening. That was starting to feel beyond the words, which is how someone is, how someone feels about the the feeling behind the words. And more deeply than the feeling behind the words, the being behind the words. And another version of this would be, well, it's the emotional dump. When someone comes up to you and they have these terrible feelings and they just need to let someone know. And if you're a good friend and you're good at listening, you can listen in such a way which transmutes the negative energy and the negative emotions into something positive. But not many people have that skill. Most people, if they're a good friend, well, well let's say there's three categories. There's, there's the people that don't listen. There's the people that think, I don't need to put up with your problems. I'm not here to support you. And to an extent, we all need to draw a line. We all need to say how much we're willing to listen to certain people at certain times. Then there's the people that do listen. And it might be that, well, between those two steps, it's the people that have it dumped on them without them choosing. And they say, wow, I don't really want to listen to that person again. But the second step would be someone who is willing to listen. Someone who's saying, yes, I'm here for you. And they are a good friend. And say, tell me your problems. I'm a shoulder to cry on, this sort of thing. But that person doesn't necessarily know what to do with it. They might still feel the the pain and the 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 the, the sad, like the negative sucking from that conversation and then walk away and not know how to turn it into something positive for themselves. And it might be that the person that did all the talking does feel something good, but it's the wrapping up, it's the end, it's the, the it's the what should we say, the, the transmuting, the alchemy that needs to occur. And that's that, that, this is the third category of person. And this is the person who can take it in and do the alchemy and then put out something positive. And that person is going to be listening very deeply to the person and then responding in such a way that puts their problems into positive light. And we have a fictionalized, symbolic picture of this in The Dementors, in Harry Potter. Because you see that the secret, the secret to the Dementor, the spell that gets them away, is to transmute into something positive. You think of the happiest memory, the happiest thing of your life. and You're transmuting the darkness, the pain, the sorrow, like you'll never feel cheerful again, like you'll never be happy again. That sort of feeling. So to cast the spell, the magic spell, that gets away the Dementor, requires that skill and also it says something about these magic spells which it says it needs a wisdom of your inner being you need to really know yourself 
This is where we get deeper into the world of magic and how your knowledge is more than just book smartness. And certain spells require a self-knowledge or a wisdom of yourself, an understanding of your interior and a strength of your interior, your subjective world. So this incident, incident on the train where Harry encounters the Dementors is the beginning of that. And it's a, it's a long time before he actually learns to do the spell himself. There's a lot of ins and outs and the whole thing of Dementors is woven in and out all over this plot. And the story is that, well, the Dementors have come to guard over the castle at Hogwarts, at the Harry Potter Wizard School, at the school that he goes to, because there's a prisoner that's escaped, and that's the prisoner of Azkaban. And they think this prisoner is out to get someone. And the details around that, uh, well, there's a lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of back and forths in this plot, <laughs> as we'll see when we talk more about it. I'm not sure if it's a plot we can really say so simply. So another little cutaway is Harry has this broomstick called the Firebolt. And it was, well, well, it was the, was it the Nimbus 2000? Or the, the Firebolt. Oh no, so, so this year is the year of the Firebolt that comes out. And it's funny because two... So yeah, okay, I've got this right, I think. So in Harry's first year, he got this mad hot spanking new flying broom, which was the Nimbus 2000. And then the, the next year, the second year of Wizard School, Malfroy came out and bought... His whole team, Nimbus 2001s, like, oh, I've one-upped you. Like, take that, Harry Potter. We've got the next newest model. You'll never beat us when we've got these. And then this year, book three, third year, is the Firebolt. And we start to see the... We start to see, is there a comment on consumerism there? <laughs> Are we all just chasing a better and better car, a better and better house? I don't know. Is Harry going to fall for it? I think he does. But that's just a funny thing that is part of this story. And also Harry starts a new subject which this year, which is divination. And this is a funny character where they go up into this big tower and the teacher is this the teacher is this eccentric character and she's a bit worried and a bit ooh a bit hooey hooey, a bit hari, a bit kooky sort of thing. And divination, well, as I understand it, it's sort of it's sort of like the astrology of the wizarding world. It's the reading the fortune, telling the future, reading palms, reading tea leaves and they, they Harry does all this in the class and dream interpretation. And it's funny that even in this book, even 
in this year, some of the students are a bit like, eh, you reckon this is, you know, you get the impression like, is this a bit of a joke? Is this real? This isn't real magic. This isn't actually working. And it's sort of funny that within the world within the world has sort of kooky pseudoscience or a pseudo practice. And it's come up in this divination teacher. And, well, we actually have these. I mean, all these things we have in real life, we have in our world, in the muggle world, in different ways. And we could say, well, in the muggle world, we just dismiss them and we say they're not true. Whereas in another world, certain things do make sense. And one of the things the teacher says, and this is interesting, is that she says, books can only take you so far. You must have sight. And she says that particularly, I think, in relation to Hermione, who, who is very smart, very book smart. And so Hermione is one of these sort of, she's sort of like the scientist in this situation. She's saying, is this class real? Do I really want to be doing this? And the teacher's saying, no, you just don't understand. And that's the clash between two different world perspectives where it's not a dramatic crossover where one is trying to deny the other or one is trying to say that the other is wrong or prove the other wrong or anything like that. It's more of a crossover between world perspectives where one is sort of trying to convince the other but... Also okay with just not convincing them. Because to the divination teacher, she knows that she's in a different place. She knows that she's trying to explain to these kids. She knows that it's true that you have to go beyond the books to really understand it. Sight is different to knowledge. And that's just another different way that these different perspectives cross over. I went to a fortune teller once. It was sort of by chance. And it was... Well, let me explain a little bit of the situation. It was at a Halloween party. And it was quite a big party, a very big party, you could say. It's probably 300 people there. And that was because it was part of a conference. And it was a multi, a few day long conference. And one of the, one of the evenings was a Halloween party. And the party was quite elaborate. It had a big dinner. It had entertainment. It had all sorts of makes-ups and costumes and shows and music and dancing and different things like this. And one of the things in one of the parts was you could go off into one of the uh, into a corner and sit down at a table and talk to a fortune teller. And this was at a time when I was sort of starting to become sensitive to other perspectives like I was pretty open-minded but I was still still not 
like I wasn't world traveled or hadn't actually been to this other world or anything like that. So I was sensitive. I was enough open enough to listen and actually take it. Well, it, that's the funny thing. You don't have to take it seriously. Like the thing is, do you have to do you have to go into it believing that it's real or believing that it's false? Well, it's not about it's not a matter of right or wrong or true or false or anything. It's just a matter of being open and sensitive. And I sat down with this lady and I could see she was an older lady. I could see she was wearing all the mystical things, bracelets, and she had her hair done and she was in this robe and she had her crystal ball and her tarot cards and different jewelry on the table. I could see, now what's going on here? What is this? And I could see when I sat down that she was sincere. And I think she, and I could tell, well, it became clear quite quickly that she could see that I was sincere. She could tell that I was sincere. And she held my hand and she looked into my hand. And she was just saying a few things and looking me in the eye and talking in a low voice and she was just saying little things about me just things that just things about me saying oh you're very sensitive and you are open and one of the things and they they were just little things but the the main thing that stuck with me she said oh you shouldn't work behind a laptop you should work with people you should work face to face with people and it's sort of funny that <laughs> the job that I was doing at that time was more face-to-face than the job I'm doing right now. Like right now I'm sitting behind a laptop. The very thing I'm looking at at this instance is a laptop. And the work that I'm doing does involve so much laptop work. But I think she was right. I think I did need to be like that. And since then, well, I've sort of been to the world where these fortune tellers are accepted and understood and they have their training and they have their skills and they have their ways of explaining things which are very different to being in the muggle world, which is the standard capitalist, rational, atheistic world that most of us live in and so well it's just my experience to see both sides and then the other thing that happens in Harry's class with this divination teacher is the teacher predicts that Harry is going to die. (laughs) And Harry thinks, well, there's this prisoner of Azkaban out and about. It must be him that's going to kill me. And Harry keeps seeing this, this omen, which is this dog. And he thinks, well, maybe that's a sign. And he starts to worry more and more about his death. And then... Another teacher, he goes to, it's sort of funny because he goes to another class. Like one class, he's getting told, oh, he's going to die. 
And then the next class he goes to and the teacher's like, oh, did she predict someone's death? She does that every year. (laughs) This is just routine prediction for her. (laughs) Is she ever right about these predictions? I mean, there's still multiple worlds is one thing, but there's still there's still the question of competency. Like we still end up wondering, oh, is she very good? Does she actually know what she's talking about? She might she might understand. Like it's one thing to understand the world of divination. It's another thing to actually be competent. So an appreciation is different to skill. And so some of the students and Harry and his friends are sort of like, this is is this true? Should I take this too seriously? And so you notice this this sort of presenting, the way that it's presented in this narrative is not a question of, is it right or is it wrong? Is it true or is it false? Is it appreciation? Is it productive or any of these things? It's, it's fluid and it's got multiple angles to it, just like it does in our world. And there's one side that says, no, we have to be right or wrong. Science or no science, that's how it is. And then the other end of the spectrum is, no, well, we have to be open, we have to be mystical. Ah, everything is magical. And then there's another camp, which sort of we're in right now, which is we're comparing the two, and we're really trying to look at the two and understand both and how they fit together and their differences and all sorts of things. And as a a matter of fact, and we know this because we've read the rest of the Harry Potter series, Harry does die. She's right. She's actually right in her prediction. Because we know that Harry dies in the end. I hope that's not a spoiler. I should have said spoiler alert. Basically, for this series, I'm assuming you've read the novels. Or you or you at least know the basic plot. So, if you don't, spoiler alert, and too bad you know now. You really should know that it's a key plot point. That <laughs> It's a pretty main plot point that Harry dies. (laughs) When your protagonist dies, you need to know that. So we don't find that out for uh, many more years. This is still only, he's still only in third grade. So another class, another new teacher for Defense Against the Dark Arts, because Lockhart lost his mind with the memory spell that he put on himself. And that's Professor Lupin. And this is sort of the the new character which Harry takes a liking to. And there's this creature, this magical creature called the Bogart, which is a shapeshifter. And this is the this is an interesting one. It's sort of in the same category as the mir- mirror of Iris said, Iris said, the mirror that shows you your desires. I can't, I can't remember how to pronounce it, but it's the mirror in the first one which shows you what you really desire. But this one is different because it's a shapeshifter which becomes your deepest fears, your darkest fears. So the students learn how to face their darkest fears by facing this bogart. And I think it's interesting for some people what comes out of that. And there's a scene where each student is going up and something different happens for each of them. 
And the cure, well, the real end of it is laughter. And that's a very poetic comment by the author. The cure for your deepest, darkest fears is laughter. And that's something that's easy to forget. It's easy to overlook. It's very important to have a good laugh every now and then. And there's also this thing with with Harry and Lupin where Lupin sort of pulls him aside one one day and and asks him, is there anything worrying you? Is there anything you want to tell me? And, well, Dumbledore's tried the same trick with Harry. Dumbledore's opened a helping hand to say, is there anything you need to tell me? Is there anything I can do to help you? And Harry says no. Even though he is worried, he's worried about omens. He's worried about this prisoner of Azkaban coming to kill him. He's worried about the prediction of his death. He's worried about these bad dreams that he's having. He's worried so much about what the school thinks of him, what his friends think. There's so many different pressures on him. But he says no. And this is just another crack in the stone which occurs in adolescence between the parents or the guardian figure, the adult figures, and the child and the young one growing up. It's just another difference of understanding how coming into independence happens and what that means. And it means, well, maybe some of your problems can't be shared. and Maybe Harry is starting to lose faith that his problems can't be helped by anyone around him. And having that happen can be quite a burden because Harry's not quite at the point where he's ready to take care of his problems himself. And if we look at a teenager's life around this age, that's sort of 15, you do have to think that it's pretty hard. It's pretty difficult. Because most teenagers, well, here in the, here in the West, their, their basic lifestyle is, well, they've got school, and they've got their teachers and they've got their friends, but there's also the whole social sphere at school. There's also the, the, the popular kids or the mean kids or the losers. Who's friends with who? And they're all just put together. And they're all trying to work out how to relate to each other, what to do, where to spend their time, where to sit. Who gets invited to parties? Who doesn't? Who has the best party? Who doesn't? Who has friends and who doesn't? All these things. It just the whole social sphere is so difficult. And they're all in it together. There's really nowhere like school 
where there's so many people together with such small experience and yet they're expected to relate to each other. And then on top of that, they've got the schoolwork. And Harry's almost at this point. He's not quite at it yet. But the schoolwork becomes more and more serious. You get more homework. You have exams. You have essays. And the teachers are telling you this is the most important thing that you can do and you have to succeed. And the whole determining of your entire life is going to depend on how your grades are. And so you've got that pressure. And then you go home and then you've got your family. And your independence is happening. You're starting to lose trust in your parents. You're trying to want to experiment and do things and go out and they won't let you. They're being restrictive. So then home life becomes a drag. And then maybe you have a job or you learn to drive and you get a little bit more freedom, but then that comes with a whole lot of complications as well. As you go to work, you have some of your own money. Great, some more independence. But then you have the responsibility of going to work. Can I do this job properly? Will there be people that like me at work? And on it goes. And even deeper than all that, you're starting to go through puberty. You're having these emotions opening up. You're starting to have this romance feeling come up. All these sexual energies. And you've got society and your parents and your teachers telling you that sex is wrong. And you really want to experiment and you're really nervous around the opposite sex. And that just complexifies the social sphere even more. Who's going to be whose boyfriend and girlfriend? Who's going to get with who? Oh, but then I really like this person, but the day, do they like me? And it can be really wonderful. It can be beautiful when you get a partner, you get that first kiss. Ah, but then there's the heartbreak and then there's the missing. So it's a very, very complex world that the adolescents are thrown into in the education system. And Harry is feeling that. He feels that. He definitely feels that in many ways. Even at this stage, even in third year. It gets a lot more complicated, but even in third year, he's feeling it. And in and with all that going on, he has this teacher turn around and say, is there anything worrying you? <laughs> now, if Harry had have been honest, he would have said, are you kidding me? There's a man from that's broken out of prison. There's a man broken out of prison that's coming to kill me. I'm going to die. I keep seeing, oh, I've got the, the fear of death hanging over me. And you're asking me, is there anything wrong? Like, you, you've got to be joking. Like, that's what, that must be what kids think. That must be. I'm sure I was thinking that. Whenever anyone said that to me, is there anything wrong, little Dosta? Dosta, is there anything I can do to help you? Get out of here. You have got to be kidding me. Where do I begin? You can't even fathom the problems that an adolescent is going through. The fears they have. And the frustrations they have. 
And the man that's asking him, Professor Lupin, is actually quite a good man, and Harry has taken quite a liking to him. He feels that Lupin has a warm heart, and Lupin does have Harry's best interests in mind, in heart. So there's one more key thing which we'll talk about, which is that Fred and George, which is the the Weasley twins, they're sort of the comic relief, they're the fun ones. After so much seriousness, (laughs) it sort of feels like we need some comic relief, doesn't it? (laughs) It's always good to have some comic relief, and they really are funny. They're very funny characters. So Fred and George, they're sort of talking to Harry, and they give him the Miranda's map. This is a very special map. And the reason they give it to him, well, the whole thing about Harry getting permission to go out on outings, well, he didn't get permission because of all the stuff that went wrong, which meant he couldn't go with his friends. But Fred and George are like, well, hey, we'll give you this map which will show you the secret entrance into wherever it is. Where are they going? Hogsmeade? Hog's Breath? No, not Hog's Breath. That's the the restaurant. (laughs) I think it's Hogsmeade. Anyway, it's the wizard sort of township where the kids can go on outings. And so Harry can put on his invisibility cloak and use the map. And wow, wonderful. And it turns out this map really is something special because... It shows on it not only the secret passageways, but also each person as they're walking around. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like, well, actually, there is someone with that sort of a map? There is someone who sees where exactly every person is at every moment of the day. And this is the surveillance culture that we live in. And there are three things to be understood by this. One is that many people still don't know we're under surveillance. People still don't know how much data is being collected on us through our smartphones, through our GPS systems, through our applications, and through our internet use. And the next thing to know is, well, the people that do know that don't realize the significance of it. It's one thing to know that it's happening. It's another thing to know the significance of it. And the third thing to know is, well, what is the extent of it? Maybe that isn't quite as so important as the significance of it. But what is the extent of it? How far does it go? Because data collection, data collection, 
is it's a term that needs to be understood. And we're living in a modern world where this term, well, the, the extent of it is always changing. And the conditioning that we have, the advertising that is put into our face, and the way that these applications are designed, all of this is orchestrated around us. All of this is set up for a purpose, which is not our best interests. And it's something that a lot of people are talking about, and there are many people that know more about this than me. There are many people that can speak much more beautifully and offer up a much better picture. And it's really quite hard. It's really quite difficult to realize the significance of surveillance culture, to realize that this Miranda's map actually exists There is someone sitting watching you. And not even that, they're they're watching everyone. And they're not watching you in the sense of, oh, they're sitting there. Here's the difference. They're not, it's not like someone has a screen and your name pops up with two little feet. And when you walk, the feet move and you get in your car and then you drive and your name moves across the map. There, there probably is somewhere that has that sort of interaction with this data, but most likely that's not what's happening. How it works, as I imagine it, is, well, it's more like number crunching, which is not someone watching you every moment of the day, but there's a log, which is, oh, you went down this street this amount of times, or you went to this website this amount of times, or you clicked on this image, this type of image, and so on. And then these little numbers, these tiny numbers, these little observations are put into a number system, and then those numbers turn into more numbers, and then those numbers are analyzed, and they're put into algorithms. And that's the meaning of data analysis. That's the meaning of someone watching you and taking your data. So don't think that, oh, Mr. Facebook and Mr. Google, these people are watching us like Harry watches people on this magic map. It's not like that at all, because they're watching everyone and then putting numbers behind each thing and then organizing the numbers. And it's a huge amount of data. They collect data for days and days and years and years. And it builds up a picture. It's like a a meta profile on you. So when you have a Facebook profile, most people don't really know this, but you actually have your profile, which you created, but then there's also the profile which Facebook has on you. And that is your traffic habits, your attention habits. And it can go into all sorts of details like how, how long you looked at a certain image. 
what websites you clicked through to, and so on. So I wish I wish I could explain more about the surveillance state. It's really something that I'm quite amateurish about. And it's been enough for me to see and read about it in this book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, for it to trigger something in me. And I don't know what the comment that the author is trying to make. It might be that the author is just trying to say, well, this is a cool prop, which gets Harry into some cool adventures. What we do need to be aware of, the surveillance state. And I hate to I hate to sound like a conspiracy theory. Like we can't, it, it's one thing to say, oh, there's a conspiracy. What does this mean? The government's out to get us. Oh, Google is out to get us. No, I don't want to turn it into a conspiracy theory. This is not a conspiracy theory. And that's just something to be aware of. And there are many things we need to be aware of and many things we do need to research more into and understand more on. So I think that's enough for this episode and we'll talk about some more from the book Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban next episode. So we'll just finish now with a few minutes of sitting quietly. If it's comfortable for you to do so, you can stop what you're doing, sit down and close your eyes and just be still for a few minutes and that's all I have to say for now.